This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Social Security Administration wants to hire more frontline employees, but with heavy workloads, low morale, and one out of every eight workers leaving the agency, increasing staff seems nearly impossible. Here to talk more about it is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, who's been covering SSA's budget hearings on the Hill this season. Hey, Drew. Hey, Jared. How are you? Good. So um, let's talk through some of these issues. What are some of the biggest problems that SSA is telling Congress that they're seeing? Morale is at an all-time low right now for a lot of these customer-facing employees at the Social Security Administration. The agency said it has an overall staff attrition rate of about 10%, and some components have even higher rates of attrition. So, for example, in their teleservice centers, there's about a 17% rate of employees leaving their jobs. And at the same time, the agency is also seeing a growing number of beneficiaries, up 21% in the last decade, uh, from 54 million to 65 million. But in the same vein, in the same time period, SSA's budget has fallen 14% when adjusted for inflation. And those numbers were brought up at the House Ways and Means Committee hearing, which addressed some of SSA's biggest obstacles to serving its customers. A big problem is uh, tying back to staff shortages, as I mentioned, with the high rates of attrition. And SSA overall currently has fewer than 60,000 employees. At the hearing, Grace Kim, who's Deputy Commissioner for Operations at SSA, said that number is a record. We are at our lowest staffing level in 25 years. This has been driven by years of insufficient funding and hiring freezes, compounded by unprecedented attrition. We are struggling to replace our employee losses, especially in the state DDSs, resulting in growing backlogs in disability workloads. We have limited overtime to compensate for staffing shortages, and employees have been carrying more than their share of the burden. This is reflected in our employee engagement scores, where the overwhelming sentiment is that our workloads are unreasonable. That's Grace Kim, Deputy Commissioner for Operations at SSA. And Drew, clearly from the agency's perspective, and I'm sure from a lot of employees' perspective, these funding issues are impacting the lives of the SSA employees. But but how about the actual level of service that the agency thinks it's able to provide um, compared to where it thinks it ought to be? Absolutely. They said that is a pressing problem for the agency. Beyond employees being dissatisfied and feeling overworked, Kim also said that the low staffing causes a growing number of pending cases at SSA when you look at the customer end. And to try to work through some of that, SSA, sorry, to try to work through some of that, SSA opened its doors to the public back on April 7th. And Kim says that reopening doors was necessary for customers who face barriers like experiencing homelessness or maybe have a lack of access to the internet or a telephone. Here's Kim again at the hearing. Reopening our field offices to all walk-in service has restored a vital service channel necessary for these customers. While reentry has been smooth, we have significant service challenges. Unprecedented call volumes to our field offices and the national 800 number challenge system capacity, causing periods of unacceptable service disruption during the pandemic. In our field offices, employees are balancing nearly 140 workloads while handling more customer calls and phone appointments than they had before the pandemic. 
That's Grace Kim, Deputy Commissioner for Operations at SSA. And so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place right now. They need to serve more customers, especially face-to-face, but at the same time, moving more employees back to the office could cause further dissatisfaction and potentially more people to leave the agency. Yeah, and on that point, Drew, I mean, just more money alone to hire more new people isn't necessarily going to solve all the problems here because of what you wrote about being a very high attrition rate um, at at the agency. What's SSA doing to actually hold on to people once it hires them? Right, so they are struggling to keep employees when they hire them. Uh, Peggy Murphy, who is the immediate past president of National Council of Social Security Management Associations and also a district manager of the Social Security Office in Great Falls, Montana, said she's really concerned about the future of SSA's workforce. We are at a critical impasse. The demand for service is high. We are losing staff and morale is low. Many employees have left the agency for the private sector or other federal agencies that offer higher pay and less stressful jobs. And telework has become a deal breaker for some. For some, They simply don't want to work for us without telework as an option. I'm concerned about how we can attract and retain employees. SSA must distinguish itself as an attractive employer to recruit our future workforce. And it's not just telework. Murphy says that training employees is a huge pain point for the agency. The training it takes for customer and employees and public-facing jobs typically takes about two to three years to complete. It's complex, time-consuming, and Murphy says because the it's such a daunting undertaking, many new employees choose to leave leave the agency within their first year on the job. And clearly, Drew SSA is aware of these problems, including the the attrition problems specifically. What does does SSA have a plan to deal with some of these issues? In their fiscal 2023 budget request, the agency is asking for 4,000 new frontline operations jobs, and they said that adding more workers would help to balance out some of these heavy workloads. That's uh, a common thread for the agency. And they also asked in the budget request for expanded overtime hours and better investments in their IT infrastructure. Some of their current systems are more than 50 years old, but the budget request would also invest Once employees are in the door in training and development, workplace flexibilities and improving technology that will help them and give them better tools to do the work that's needed. They're trying to accomplish that with things like talent teams and improvements to their internship program to try to garner more interest at the front end of hiring. And ultimately, out of all of those efforts, the goal would be to reduce the averaging the average processing time. They want to bring it down to 164 days. And they also said in the meantime to kind of help with figuring out a way to deal with heavy workloads, they said they prioritize providing decisions to those who have been waiting the longest. And, and based on the testimony that you heard before Ways and Means, what kind of reception have these funding requests been getting in Congress? Many did agree that SSA is having a lot of hiring and retaining uh, issues with their employees, but a lot of them disagreed over how exactly to deal with that issue. Several congressmen on the committee said increasing the budget alone by adding 4,000 new positions will not resolve staffing shortages for the agency. For example, committee member and Congressman Tom Rice from South Carolina said that ramping up in-person work could help reduce some of the workforce issues that SSA faces. Since reopening a source back in April, about 
50 or 60 percent of public facing SSA staff is working in person. But Rice, the congressman, said that that's not enough. He said getting people back into the office, along with IT modernization, would help resolve a lot of these problems. And, and any other plans that you heard from SSA in terms of how to improve on some of these workforce issues beyond more money? Murphy, the SSA district manager, said the agency has made some positive strides toward making its training virtual whenever possible and also available on demand. So that's sort of an asynchronous training. And that can help provide more flexibility to employees or potential applicants and especially newer workers who are just getting started in these very long and complex training programs. She said that interactive training, testing throughout the training periods, and also immediate feedback should all be should all be included in the training process moving forward. She recommends changing what she calls the career ladder for entry-level positions to make them more desirable and competitive. And finally, she said it's important to establish clear guidance on which positions are eligible for, te- for telework and which ones are not. All right, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks very much, Drew. Thanks, Jared. And you can read more in her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And 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 he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do 
especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.